If you've uh, been with us in recent times, you know we've been doing a series called about King David, about David. And we went back to the time in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, as many people said, is not their favorite book, and I can understand that. I'll take Romans over at any time. But it's still part of God's word. And what I want to do for a few minutes, since we've had Advent and we've had New Year's and a lot of things going on, I want to give you just maybe about a three-minute kind of reminder of what we've been studying in 1 Samuel. So if you would stick with me for a minute, let's just remind a little bit, a little bit of review. You may remember that the big passage was in chapter 17 where David killed Goliath. That's one of those like high points in the time of the story that we're talking about today. David killed Goliath, and of course, king, the king who was Saul was so thrilled that here David could do it, and everybody thought David was great, and that was the problem. As the people thought David was more and more great, then Saul became more and more jealous, to the point like dangerously jealous. And so we understand in this passage right here it was a great thing, and he wanted David to be with him. In fact, in chapter 18, it starts off this way. We're in 19 today, by the way, but just by review. In chapter 18, verse 1, it said, When David had finished speaking with Saul, Jonathan committed himself to David and loved him as much as he loved himself. It's one of these great friendships, great relationships. And what's interesting here is that here you've got Saul, this is, you know, of course, the son of the king, but that king is getting increasingly weird, increasingly strange. And yet here you've got this great relationship between Jonathan and David. And you see in verse 2, Saul kept David with him. Like any guy that can kill somebody with life big, you know, with a stone, that's the kind of guy you want to keep around. Saul kept David with him from that day on and didn't let him return to his father's house. But he was there. He was in the court with them, and they, he went and fought their battles. And, and fortunately, things started going bad again. And what's important in this thing to remember is the fact that this great covenant made several times, a couple times, the covenant they made between each other, between Jonathan and David. And we all know from the time when we look at back in the time of Exodus where God, they made a covenant with Israel. That's God with his people. But this is a covenant between two people. This is between Jonathan and David. And so it said, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as much as himself. Then Jonathan removed the robe that he was wearing, and he gave it to David. Now think about it in that time, nearly 3,000 years ago. Jonathan himself is a full-grown man. He's a great warrior. But he looks upon David and realizes, I may be a great warrior, but this guy's even better than I am. I wasn't going to take on Goliath. He did. And he had the courage to do so by the power of God to do so. And he recognizes the greatness of David, even though he realizes if this keeps going, my father's going to get more and more upset because he says David's doing great, but Saul's not doing well at all. So it said in verse 4, Then Jonathan removed the robe he was wearing. He gave it to David along with his military tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. In other words, hey, man, it's yours. I'm acknowledging that you are better than I am, you are more powerful than I am, and we've made this covenant with each other. Of course, he's going to ask him at least several more times, I want you to be careful with my family when all this goes down. But he's saying, I recognize who you are, and I'm willing to recognize I won't be number one, you'll be number one. And so it's an important thing to see that Jonathan is such a great character in the Old Testament, you can see why. Now we move on to chapter 18, we have this big phrase that Saul went nuts over. 
David again went out for battle, and things went well, and he was doing great. And the people, the women are singing, Saul has struck down his thousands. That sounded great. It's the next part of it that Saul didn't like, and David his 10,000. That green-eyed monster, that green-eyed monster called jealousy is eating his guts. He says, I do great things. I struck down these thousands. You think they'd all be cheering for me? Well, they were in part, but not like they were cheering for David. And you can just see his heart becoming more and more hardened from God. More and more hardened against God, like, you know what? I'll do whatever I have to do to get rid of this guy. David is realizing that it's getting dangerous to continue in this relationship. And there's an interesting phrase that comes in the next one. It says, the next day... An evil spirit from God took control of Saul. And we've talked about this before. It seems strange that the very spirit that God can use to encourage and, and strengthen his people, God can use it in a negative thing to bring discouragement or to bring a harm to a person. He does this with David, I mean with Saul. He said he, this evil spirit from God took control of Saul and he began to rave inside the palace. Now imagine what must be like to be in the room with this guy. Here's this guy raving, crazy acting in the room, and you know, it's like, you know, this is guy's got a spear. And it makes me nervous. Like, don't turn your back. Because this guy named Saul is getting worse. David was playing the harp as usual, and um, but Saul was holding a spear and he threw it, thinking, I'm gonna pin David to the wall. Now I don't know about you, it only happened for me once before I'd realize, I don't think I want to be employed by this guy anymore. The crazy thing is he stays. He goes on and he stays, at least for a little while as we see what's going on. And so it said, Saul told David, I'm skipping some passages by review, but you remember what happened? He started thinking, how can I get rid of David? And so Saul said, and here, David said to David, I mean, Saul said to David, you know, here's my oldest daughter, Merab. Wouldn't that be great to be married to the king? Well, that'd be great. I'll give her to you as a wife if you'll be a warrior for me and fight the Lord's battles. But Saul was thinking, my hand doesn't need to be against him. Let the hand of the Philistines be against them. In other words, here's a guy that wants to look like he's being honest, but he's not. And what he's doing, he's saying, this guy, he's not going to go out every time and win. We're going to keep pushing him out there until finally some of the Philistines kill him. And it's sad because he's not concerned about his daughter. He's concerned about himself and his desire to get rid of David. And so you see, Saul is continuing to struggle because in the sense, David is on the ascent. He's going. He's going and blowing and doing well. And of course, the more that happens, the less that Saul likes. Saul's on the descent. Spiritually, emotionally, he is going down. And yet he is clinging to all that. He is the king. He feels like he can't trust his own son because his son seems to be best friends with David. And so Saul is in a position and a struggle that's so hard for him. In one sense, you can have a certain compassion for him, but in another sense, here's a guy that's turned away from God, and here's what happens when people make decisions like that. So notice, if you will, 1 Samuel 19 is where we are. It's a relatively short passage, but it's important. In 1 Samuel chapter 19, it starts off this way. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Now think about that. Jonathan is David's best friend. 
And Saul's father has just told Jonathan, go kill your best friend. Saul ordered his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. But Saul's son Jonathan liked David very much. So he told him, my father, Saul intended to, excuse me, excuse me. So he told him, my father, Saul, intends to kill you. Be on your guard in the morning and hide in the secret place and stay there. He's saying, it's interesting because here you give once again, Saul is in the possible position of killing him, and yet he says, I'll hide you for you. Go hide. And so here again, Saul is in this position of his own son is now trying to be kind and helpful and protect the very man that Saul is telling to go kill. And so he tells him, he tells Jonathan, tells David, I'm going to go out and stand by my father in the field where you are, and I'm talking to him about you. When I see what he says, I'll tell you. In other words, he's in a good mood today. Let's see what my dad, the king, says about this. And here you see again the greatness of Jonathan. He realizes that his father is going down. He knows that David is going up. He knows he's made a covenant relationship with David. And yet he's doing all he can to protect David, even though his father tries to kill him. Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He said to him, the king, he's talking about his dad, the king should not sin against the servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage for you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine. Did you know anybody else that could kill Goliath? No. The Lord brought you about a great victory for all Israel. You saw it, Dad. You rejoiced. So why would you want to sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? The courage of Jonathan, who knows that his dad's crazy enough to kill him, is brave enough to say, Dad, this is absolutely wrong. Look what David has done for you. And Jonathan seemed to have that ability to calm his dad down and say, wait a minute, think about it. What has he done for you as compared to what you think he's done to you? So Saul listened to Jonathan's advice, and he swore an oath, saying, As surely as the Lord's lived, David will not be killed. Now, what's interesting here is, you know, in the Old Testament, an oath was very, very important. I mean, you didn't break an oath. People today, we don't even use the word an oath so much, maybe in law or something like that. But in the ancient world, an oath was something very important. Remember, I think it was Jephthah who said, Any, The first thing that came out of that house, we'll, we'll offer it. And what was it? His daughter. So they offered her. In other words, an oath is so important, nothing else will break it. So you have Saul, said, Saul listened to Jonathan's advice, and he, Jonathan swore, excuse me, king had an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David won't be killed. In the ancient world, that is a really, you know, clad, important thing. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. Then Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he served him as he did before. I don't know about you, if I was David, I don't think I'd be looking for another employer. I still would not want to have to be around this guy. But notice what happens. When war broke out again, David went out and fought against the Philistines. He defeated them with such a great force that they fled from him. In other words, this guy's amazing. Isn't it great to have David? Dad, aren't you, Dad, Dad, aren't you glad we got David here? What a warrior he is. And he's going, well, yeah, he's a great warrior, but if we get a chance, I'm going to kill him. So you can see how bad this is. Now, once again, we hear this phrase, an evil spirit from the Lord. Now, it's important. It doesn't say an evil spirit from Satan. It says it's an evil spirit from the Lord. That God is using that to bring him down, a man who's turned away from him. Now, an evil spirit from the Lord came and saw while he was sitting in his palace holding a spear. 
David was playing the harp, and Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. As the spear struck the wall, David eluded Saul, and he escaped. That night, he ran away. Good idea. Good idea. This is a great time to leave. Saul decided, I'm going to kill him. Now notice verse 11. Saul sent agents to David's home to watch for him and to kill him in the morning. Now here's where his wife comes in. But his wife, Michael, warned David, if you don't escape tonight, you're going to be dead tomorrow. Honey, you better get out. So she lowered David from the window, and he fled and escaped. This is once again, once it was Jonathan who got his father to turn away from killing him. Now his own daughter is now lying to his own father and to the guys, saying, oh, no, no, he's not here. Da, da, da. He's lying to him. But yet he is now working on David's side, his husband, not for his own father. She lowered David from the window, and he fled and escaped. Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, placed some goat hair on its head, and covered it with a garment. This reminds us of some of these old movies you see about the prisons. You ever see that, where they put the pillows up and some hair, and you think, oh, that guy's asleep. Well, he's escaped, and maybe it's given him hours to be able to get ahead of it. That's exactly what's going on here. She rigs it all up. Says, Shh, he's sleeping. Can't you let him sleep? You know? Oh, okay. He is still a great guy, so they turn around and go. And says, so she took the, put the goat's hair on the head and covered it with a garment. Then Michael took the household idol and put it on the bed, and it says wife Michael, placed some goat hair on its head and covered it with a garment. Okay? And there's an interesting thing here is, what is she doing with an idol? We're going to talk about that for a moment. What is she doing with a household idol? Just stop for a moment, just kind of remember some of the things that are going on. In Hebrew, the word that's being used when it's a word called teraphim. It's used 15 times in the Old Testament. Um, probably one of the best known ones is back in Genesis. In Genesis 5, no, 31, 30, um, uh, uh, they're on the way leaving. Uh, they're heading back to, uh, to their land. And if you remember what's happening, um, Laban is so furious with his son-in-law and his wife that he chases them and said he's going to get them. And if you remember, she, you know, what happened is he said, everybody get up here. I'm going to find out where you took my teraphim. She said, well, I would be happy to do so, Dad, but it's the time of the month for me, and I really can't stand up. And he said, oh, oh gee, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And he goes on to the next person. And he, she, what she did is basically lied to protect her husband. And so what goes on is saying, okay, so that's one of the most common ones, that's one of the most well-known ones where it talks about it. And the question is, where is all this? Where is, where is their God in all this? By the way, the word teraphim, they really don't know what it means. They have all kinds of ideas. But it has something to do with spiritual, with their fact of their gods. And that, now notice in verse 14, when Saul sent agents to seize David, Michael said, oh, he's sick. You know, first of all, they came first, and he said, oh, he's asleep. Then she said, oh, now he's sick. So go back. So the guys go back to Saul and say, oh, why can't we couldn't do anything? You know, he's sick. So what happened? Saul sent the agents back to David and said, bring him in the bed so I can kill him. This is pretty direct. I don't want to care here about him being sick. I don't want to care about this. Your job is kill him. You got it? Right. So when the messengers arrived to their surprise, the household idol was on the bed with some of the goats here on the head. Let me pause for a second. Sometimes we have this kind of thing. We look back at the older ages and we think things were so much better then. You know, you hear people doing this, and that, you know, I'm not a youngster anymore either. But yeah, yeah, when I was a boy, I used to get a coke for a nickel. You remember all that? 
You know, for 10 cents, you could buy a whole bag of this. And, you know, boys were boys and girls were girls. And, boy, that was the good old days. You know, they had their problems back then, too. We sometimes fantasize of thinking how wonderful it was in the past. Hey, this is the A-team that we're dealing with right here. And they're lying. They're cheating. They're doing all this kind of stuff. And what's interesting here to remind you, you know what? It's Eastern here. This is like some kind of spiritual thing for them. This is some kind of god or goddess that they seem to be worshiping. And we keep saying, really? After all that God has done, all that they've learned, that they're still working with probably idols, with other gods than Yahweh? And so it reminds us again that here with even some of the best of the people in the Old Testament, it wasn't always perfect, just like it isn't perfect today. I'll go on this next passage, if you would. Saul came to Michael, his daughter, and said, Why did you deceive me like this? You sent my enemy away. In other words, David. You sent my enemy away, and he's escaped. So she, Michael, answered her father, saying, uh, uh, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, I have no way of knowing if she's lying or she really meant it. I don't really think David was planning on killing his wife. But it worked. And what's interesting, all through this passage, you keep seeing deception, 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 and more deception. And this is the best that we've got. It reminds us that all of us, like sheep, have fallen astray. We've all gone our own way. That even as believers, we have struggles, we fail, and we sin. And this is a classic story of you've got a person, people, who are continuing to lie to get what they want. So notice what happens in the story as you're aware. Somebody made it interesting, a commentator said, you know, you can call this story, Saul's children saved David. Think about that. Saul's children saved David. Jonathan did. Michael did. We're going to see two more experiences of that. And here's poor Saul. In one sense, I have a sense of sadness for him. He was a great king. He was the chosen one of God to lead his people. And God did use him. He's the one that pushed the Philistines back, that brought back much of the land to Israel. He was a man that had good, but once again, he was not willing to fully follow God. And he began the slow but quick slide to getting further and further away from God and becoming more and more crazy as time went on. That's the great irony that Saul's children end up saving David. And the sad part was, this is an important part right in chapter 19, David never again is in Saul's court. This is the final break with this relationship. From this point out, Saul is committed to killing David. And it's sad if you think about it. I mean, here's the guy, John, you know, David, who killed Goliath. I don't care. All I know is he is going great, I'm going down, and we're going to kill him. Whatever we have to do, we'll kill him. Now, this fits into the whole big meta-narrative of what we're talking about that starts in Genesis and ends with the new heavens and the new earth. And somewhere along that big track of the meta-narrative, there's a story of the judges. And following right behind that little story about Ruth. I just read it yesterday, a beautiful little passage. And then you come to 1 Samuel. And you're looking at, boy, there's all this mess going on. Things are going on. God is still working. And here you have this whole thing, Saul is committed to killing David, and yet David doesn't know it, but God is going to use David to be the one who in 2 Samuel 17 is going to be, 11 is going to be the one who's going to say he is this one who's going to be the Messiah. He is going to be ultimately that one who's going to bring Messiah into the world. And in that big picture, this is just a little bit of the whole story of what God is telling. But for David, 
This is the end of the relationship. Now notice you would, verse 19. When it was reported to Saul that David was with Naoth and Ramah, it's probably about only 15 miles north of Jerusalem, Saul sent agents to seize David. However, when they saw the group of prophets prophesying with Samuel leading them, the Spirit of God came on Saul's agents, and they started prophesying. Well, let's stop for a minute. What does he mean by prophesying? We think of prophesying, somebody prophesied that there's going to be a you know, disaster next week. That's one way of prophesying. Usually prophesying here in this context is more like a person who's bringing maybe a vision where God is using them to see something or hear something, some encouragement, some strength. Whatever it is, what's happening is the Spirit of God is coming upon these guys who are sent to be murderers. And he's saying, okay, well, you guys are interested in killing him. I'll make sure that you can't do that. And so the Spirit of, of God came upon Saul's agents, and they started prophesying. I'm assuming, and I can't prove it, but there was probably some kind of ecstatic thing going on that in, dis, disabled them from being able to get up and kill him. So you kind of get this picture. They're all trying to kill David, and they can't do it. They're prophesying. I'm assuming they're having signed up some kind of not maybe Pentecostal type thing where they're just really going full speed and they can't even get off the ground. And so, did, you know, so here you've got Saul becoming increasingly like, what do I have to do here? I've been trying so far to kill this guy and every time I'm blocked, why is this happening to me? So in verse 21, when they reported to Saul, he sent, he, they, he sent other agents and they also began prophesying. So you got the first group prophesying, you got a second group prophesying, Saul tried again to send a third group of agents. In other words, these are the great guys. Um, they're going to get it this time. They're going to go kill them. And they're, what are they doing? They're prophesying. And they're going, what is going on here? Every time we try to get him, something happens. Duh, I wonder why. Because there is a God in Israel who's determined that Saul, David is going to live and be used by God to do what he's going to do to bring salvation to the world. God has ways of working in strange ways, and this is one of them. Notice this next phrase. Then Saul went to Ramah. It's interesting. I got this idea. He's saying, you know what? If you want a job done, you've got to do it yourself. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of this one. Saul himself went to Ramah. He came to the large cistern at Seku, looked around, and asked, where are Samuel and David? Oh, they're at Naoth and Ramah, someone said, just north of them. And so he went to Naoth and Ramah, and now notice this next phrase, the Spirit of God also came on him. Now Saul's prophesying along with these other guys. And so as he walked along, he prophesied until he entered Naoth and Ramah. So then Saul removed his clothes and prophesied before Samuel. He collapsed and lay naked all that day and all that night. Now think about this. The king of Israel the most powerful person in the nation is naked on the ground. I don't know what he's doing, but people walking by going, what is wrong with our king? Your kings don't normally lay on the ground, agitated and moving around. This is a weird deal. But now he's tried three times to send men to kill him. The first group couldn't do it. Second group couldn't do it. Third group couldn't do it. I'll do it myself. Guess what? He's on the ground. I have to think the Lord has a sense of humor. Looking down upon them going, you know what? That old phrase, you know your arm's too short to fight with God. You would have thought after the third time of seeing your men naked on the ground, would that give you an idea that maybe God is involved in something here and you ought to quit trying to go against them? 
So notice what happens. They said, that's why they now say, is Saul among the prophets? Like, yeah, in that sense, he is among the prophets. But it's God using him to stop what he wanted to do. They're all trying to kill him. And God is going to say, sorry, it ain't going to happen. These are my people. These are my children. And I'm not going to allow King to kill the one that God will use to bring salvation to this world. You know, you look at this passage. What do we mean when we talk about prophesying? If you go back to chapter 10, you don't have to, but in chapter 10, verse 6, there's an interesting phrase. We went through it a long time ago. When Saul turned around to to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. The Spirit of God took control of him, and he prophesied. That was a positive sense. God used him for good. And yet now, this, we're now in chapter 19, that was chapter 10. In chapter 10, Saul was doing good, and God gave him the power to be a great king. But now in chapter 19, it's just all gone to trash. He's tried and tried and tried and tried again. He can't kill this guy, even though they try so hard. Now, this passage, it may seem strange, and it is. There's a lot of strange passages in the Old Testament. But in this passage, there's some very important themes to notice here. One of the overarching themes in this is God's protection. You know, that's so neat for us. I would love that passage. You have God's protection and God's provision sort of going together in this passage. God's protection and God's provision of what he does to help his children. And if you think about it, it's such an amazing thing how God is there to care for us in a way that we need him. There's a great passage, a little thing from Dale, uh, I can't remember his name, Davis, I think it is. He had this interesting quote that I liked. He said, you know, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you're successfully past your trial, but that you're still on your feet in the middle of it. I like that quote. It's one thing to get through it. It's another to be in the middle of a problem, a huge issue, a struggle in which you're going through. And to recognize, you know what? This is a mess. I don't know how God's going to bring this out. I can't imagine what's going to happen. I feel so alone. I don't know what's going to happen. And it's saying, God's saying, am I big enough to help you in your time of need? He's saying, do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 19? Uh, Remember when the three guys went out and they couldn't do anything? The second group of three went out and they couldn't stop them. The third group, we couldn't stop them either. Then Saul's naked on the ground. Does that remind you that you have a powerful God who can meet every need and we don't have to live in fear? Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not because you've successfully passed your trial, but you're still on your feet in the middle of it. That's a great way to imagine to think how God is working in such a great way. John Murray, not the guy who was at Westminster Seminary, uh, this is like two, three generations back. He lived up in the highlands uh, uh, in, in Britain. And um, they were like, the, like what was going on in the you know, potato uh, things in, in Ireland, people were hungry. There had been bad, bad weather, there had been bad crops, and a lot of the younger people his age were leaving. They were coming to America. They had enough. They'd been in the highlands in there, and they were hungry, and they were not doing it. They couldn't find any work. And so many of them were leaving to America. And this guy named John Murray was a very godly young man. And his friends were leaving, saying, come on, John, we're getting on the boat, literally. We're going to America. Why don't you join us? And John Murray just felt like, you know, 
I could go, of course. I mean, I'm young. I could do it. I've got the money. I could go. But it was interesting. He said, what about the people here who can't go, who can't afford it, the people who are older, who won't, won't make a journey like that across the sea? Who's going to be their pastor? Who's going to care for them? And he came down to a creek, and he was sitting there, and he was praying and praying. And he said, Lord, I don't know what to do. I really would like to go to America. Uh, there's nothing for me here, but there are people. And, and if I leave, who's going to care for these people? And he said, Lord, would you please show me what you want me to do? Thud! It's like he heard this thing behind him, and he turned around, and there was this big salmon flopping on the ground. And he looked at this salmon, and he grabbed this salmon and pulled it, and he goes, uh, Lord, I'm wondering if you could provide for me. I guess this is a sign that, yes, you can provide for me. I'm staying. And he stayed, and he had a great ministry of serving the Lord. God works in strange ways. Sometimes it's through a crazy person like Saul. Sometimes it's through a salmon that jumps out of your creek. That hasn't happened to me any time recently, but Larry Honey's probably had it multiple times, I'm sure. We had it one time with Larry with a boat where the thing jumped in. That's why I like it, when they jump in. Uh, but the point is, God is able to help us in whatever our needs. I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, it's really easy to take all those passions and say, aren't they beautiful? Aren't they lovely? Don't they give us encouragement? Yeah, right up to the time that you're suffering. Then the question is, now do you really believe it? When the person maybe you depended upon so much has turned away from you? When you're wondering how you're going to pay the bills? When you look around you and you wonder, Lord, it doesn't seem possible. The reality is, do you really believe that God is our protector? He is our provider. God works in strange ways, but it reminds us again how faithful he is. There's a quote from Chuck Swindoll that I liked. He said this, the size of a challenge should never be measured by what we have to offer. It'll never be enough. <coughs> furthermore, furthermore, provision is God's responsibility, not ours. I need that verse. As a father with three children in college, three behind me, behind them, I'm glad to remind myself the fact, ultimately, we do everything we can, but ultimately, it's what God chooses to do for us. And the question is, will you trust him? Will you trust him in the midst of the sorrow, in the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the rejection? Do you really believe that God will provide? It's easy to preach. It's hard to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Father, this passage in chapter 19 is strange. We understand that. But Father, we thank you that you remind us again that you work in strange ways and that your ways are not our ways and our ways are not your ways. And so we thank you, Father, that you are the one who are committed to be our provider our Lord, our King, and that we can trust ourselves fully to you. Lord, we would ask that this day, this week, when we feel those moments of panic, of fear, of rejection, that, Lord, we would turn to you and remember that you are the great one who can enable us and help us to be all that you ask us to do and to be. Help us as we continue in our worship, we pray. We thank this in Jesus' name. Amen.